0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem.
1: For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Okay, brothers and sisters, it is great to be once again around this table as we continue to wrestle with the uh, last words of Moses. So for those that haven't been here before, we are uh, still in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy being a, uh, the longest monologue uh, in the Bible said by a guy who at the start of his career tells everyone that he can't talk, particularly God. And yet, uh, 40 years later, uh, he ends up with this massive monologue. If uh, you know Moses' words were in red, this would nearly all be in red. And uh, he's we're looking at a community... Of uh, Israelites who have come out of Egypt most of them have uh, died off by this stage and um, they are uncircumcised so uh, the first thing they're going to do when they go into the land in Joshua chapter 5 is circumcise themselves and yet this is going to be one of the things Moses is not going to tell them to do they often call Deuteronomy the second law unfortunately misnamed there's a retelling of the the Torah And it's the things that Moses leaves out which are probably just as interesting as the things that he includes. And we've begun to wrestle with a few of those. Now, I don't know all the answers, but we wrestle these things uh, together. So, before we begin, let's pray. Can I have a volunteer to pray?
0: Father, thank you for this time set aside to come before your work. Lord, we pray you'd honour us by your presence and guide us by your Spirit to see wonderful things out of your word. In Jesus'
1: name, amen. 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 All right, so looking at what we studied last week. So here is our little rundown. This is focusing on the verses 9 to 33. <coughs> Moses continues his lengthy monologue to the uncircumcised nomadic masses that assemble before him on the plains of Moab. He declares that the people are as numerous as the stars of heaven an obvious allusion to God's promise to the patriarch Abraham in the book of Genesis. This is presented as a positive blessing from the Lord with the added invocation for a further increase in population. Up to a thousandfold is his blessing. This led to a discussion on how much control God is allowed over your body. Can he or can he not dictate the size and shape of your family. There is no mention of reproductive rights for women who would obviously bear the brunt of the baby boom. So Moses doesn't say go forth and multiply and may God bless you a thousandfold and all the women say not me mate. You'll be having to choose somebody else to have 10 kids. God has since Noah, who was a gentile, sent forth the command to multiply and fill the earth. There is no discussion on reproductive rights. Something that we have today. Currently, the majority of the world has a below-replacement birth rate, with replacement rate being uh, somewhere between 2.1 and 2.3 births per woman. Should the Lord tarry, the next generation will encounter the shock of global population decline, with many countries already experiencing population decline. We have not followed the mandate of heaven. In his retelling of the appointment of leaders to share the burden of command, specifically in settling the judicial matters, Moses leaves out mentioning his father-in-law Jethro. Commentaries to Deuteronomy are divided as to whether this event, its retelling, is, uh, is from... Uh, The retelling of Exodus 18, in which the impetus to appoint leaders from among the people comes from Jethro, the pagan priest of Midian, or is it of Numbers 11, where the elders will have the same spirit as Moses and to bear the burden of the people with Moses, Numbers 11, but in which the Lord commands the appointment of leaders. Moses does not mention either the Lord's instigation on the matter, nor of Jethro's. Why not? Again, commentaries prove unhelpful and I could not find an adequate explanation. However, this I do know. Moses is highly educated, he is intelligent and he has personally communicated with God. Thus, I suspect he has good reasons for doing so and that these reasons will unfold as we study Stepha Devarim a little further. So why does Moses not mention his father-in-law or mention the Lord? Why does he seem to say it? more upon uh, the people, we will perhaps see a bit, a bit further uh, as we go. Because this is not going to be the only time he does it. Israel gathers at Kadesh Barnea, which is a major site of encampment, during the wanderings through the wilderness. This is a location near the southern border of Canaan, and later the kingdom of Judah. Here Moses retells that the Lord commands the possession of the promised land. One particular group of people are mentioned as possessing the hill country, the Amorites. Literary archaeology has discovered Akkadian, Ugaritic and Egyptian references to the Amorim, noting that they have the quality of being large people. So isn't that interesting, that ancient empires, when they wrote about the Amaru, or the Amorim, all mentioned, these are big people, and they all live in the hills. Jewish tradition says that the Amorites are the descendants of the Nephilim or the Anakim and Og was one of their kings the Amorites retained a memory of the flood if they are descendants of the Nephilim or Anakim they are retaining a memory of the flood because that is where they come from so they followed a nomadic residence in the hill territory in the Middle East they they always built high why? flood you, know, you can stay away from the water. Moses then suggests it, that it was the Israelites' idea to ask that they send the spies in to search the land, and that he agreed to the request. The t- parallel reading in Numbers 13 says that actually the Lord commands Moses to choose tribal leaders to spy out the land. The spies detail the size of the cities with impressive fortresses and the presence of Anakim, the giants. Archaeological sites, such as Telerad, reveal large wall fortifications in the Early Bronze Age, Canaanite, that are larger than later periods. Why did the ancient people feel the need to surround their cities with high walls? What weapon were they attempting to defend against? Secular archaeology can offer no reasonable explanations. Despite all the miracles, the manna, the cloud that guides the Israelites and the accompanying multitude, so it's not just uh, Jewish people, it's also Gentiles here, they rebel and they refuse to proceed with the invasion of Canaan, which says something about miracles and the effect on faith, doesn't it? Usually, none whatsoever. All right, so now we're going to try and finish off the rest of uh, chapter 1. So we'll begin at uh, verse 29. Because there's a few things there that we didn't discuss uh, last week. So I'll start. Then I said to you, do not be, be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes.
2: And in the wilderness where you saw how Adonai your God carried you as a man carries his son. Everywhere you went until he came to this place. Yet in this thing yet did not believe the Lord your God. He went before you in the in the way to seek you out a place to fit your tents, in fire by night
0: and in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore.
2: Not one of these men of the evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give you to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh; he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Because of you the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter either.
3: But your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter. it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it.
2: Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be afraid in your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then he answered and said unto me, we, we have signed against the Lord, we will go up and uh, fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us, and when we had uh, girded on every man his weapons of war, we were ready to go up into the hill. The, but the Lord said to me, Warn them not to attack,
4: for I will not be with them and their enemy will defeat them. So I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country.
0: Uh, and the Ammonites who dwell in that mountain called out against you,
2: and chased you uh, as as bees do, and drove you back from uh, Seir to um, Hormah.
1: You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. All right, okay. So, on an initial surface reading, anything there that's struck out? Anything there? There's two men that are going to enter the promised right? <laughs> Caleb, <a> yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Out of the original gang.
1: Yeah, whatever, however many there were. Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah. Anything else? We would have to listen when what God says
2: first time. Because they tried to play first time and did listen, and after, okay, we'll go. But God said, no. For, for me it's when well, God said do it you
1: have to do it not waiting and after right it's an interesting discussion on can you actually miss timing mm-hmm. so like if you didn't do it today can you actually do it tomorrow with the potential being perhaps not you know, we often have that phrase better late than never
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> not in this case yeah <laughs> This was not one of those things, and, and so, it's not as easy to say, better late than never.
2: But in that case, was there, look, I didn't believe him, because, for example, sometimes if God spoke to us, we believe him, but we say, can I do later, or something, but this this means they, uh, they didn't believe that they can fight, and right. after, when Moses told them, they, okay, we believe it now.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it is an interesting one. It's a be a good discussion when we get to it. Okay. So let's have a look at the uh, first couple of verses. So uh, we get the report that the people who are living in the land that we're about to invade are rather large, and uh, they've got strong cities. Uh, and uh, uh, they seem to be rather strong fortifications. We do not have weapons. Not, we, don't, we don't have battering rams. We don't have uh, things like that. We're a large group of wandering nomads. We've got a few swords and shields, but not something that can uh, attack a city. Uh, so we panic. And Moses' words, obviously, like any good leader, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid of them. Just saying those words often doesn't always help, okay? We all know that when we're struggling, uh, we don't always hear the good advice that is coming our way. So he says, in terms of giving his good advice, in verse 30, the Lord your God, okay? Adonai uh, Hekha, this is the one of those over 300 times where that's mentioned in this, in this book. That the Lord is your God. He is going before you. He is going to fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Okay, so what's the question?
4: Lack
1: of trust. Okay, they've got some lack of trust. So Moses has just said, the Lord will fight for you. What would be one of your, if that was said to you? what would be one of your responses back? How? How? Yeah, good one. How's he going to (coughs) fight? Like, um, so, how has God fought before? Because he says, you know, he's going to fight for you, just like he did in Egypt. Okay? But when's God going to fight? Where is he going to fight? How is he going to fight? Any ideas? He
2: does miracles.
1: Sure. He's done them before. Well,
2: he strikes down himself.
1: But that's what faith is all about. You don't know. You don't know. Mm-hmm. No. You have no clue how he's going to do that, this one. That's yeah. why it's called faith. <laughs> faith. Yeah. I mean, he
2: fought in Egypt with plagues.
1: Yes. so we, the 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 way that God fought in Egypt was with, with with his plagues. So describe the the plagues. How would they? How did they work?
4: There was a prophecy of what was going to happen, okay,
1: so and then was, it happened. And then it happened, and um, it, it tended to happen uh, over a large area. Right. So it tended to happen over all Egypt. So what would be the implication then? God's going to fight for you just like he fought in Egypt. So what's the implication?
2: He can do it
1: big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not just, let's just knock one wall down in Jericho, but... It's them all down. I mean, darkness covered Egypt, not just one city. The locusts ate all the crops, not just one field. And uh, the sand turned into lice, not just a little bit on the beach, but the whole lot. And so the sort of implication is, look, God's going to fight for you. So, okay, there's a large number of them, but more the merrier. Okay, I mean, how many cities you got? Count them up. God will take them all down. But instead, that's not what happens. And so when the actual invasion does occur, what does God do? He fights very differently. So in Jericho, we get a fantastic story. Yes. Okay, we march around, walls come down, it's great. And then that event never happens again. And then every other fight, you had to scale the walls with your ladders and you had to... Climb over and battle them with your sword. But here, this time, the first time, Moses says, Don't be terrified, don't be scared, they're really big, but your God's going to fight just like he did in the past. And it was pretty good last time.
0: There was one occasion when it was on <coughs> a fairly large scale, when, under the leadership of Joshua, when the Lord sent the angels yeah. to and there were more people killed by the hailstorm than That's by, right.
1: by his army. Yeah.
0: And then the sun stood still in the valley of Ailon, which yeah. is pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Pretty hard to arrange that
1: one. That's right. probably scared the pants off every other civilization around yeah. the planet. <laughs> like a... So, I mean, that... Them to... <laughs> the sun's never coming up! <laughs> the moon god is one! It enabled
0: them to really thoroughly defeat the with the extra data. Yeah, That was actually a very impressive occasion, but... But the, they
1: tend to be more the exception than the rule yeah. in, in the story of uh, Joshua's leadership. Yep. And uh, in the Joshua's uh, account, you sort of get the, the blitzkrieg um, approach. We thrust in and we spread out and we do really well. When you get to the Book of Judges, it looks more like a sort of slow, gradual in a penetration as we took this, and then we gathered ourselves, and we took a little bit more, and then we lost a bit, and we, it, it's, uh, the accounts are slightly varied. Uh, okay, so does God still fight? I mean, we'd like to say yes, 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 and then of course the next question would be: Who does he take? Mm. Yeah. How does he fight? Are you sure? Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't see uh, hail fall from the sky and obviously we don't see the sun stop and obviously we don't see walls come down miraculously, yet we uh, do have many accounts where people would say that miraculously they survived or miraculously things happened for them while they were in, in battle. And those stories are quite numerous, but they don't seem to be on the majestic scale. Uh, So, for me, it always is one of those um, "if," but that that great poem "If." You know, what would have happened if, if, if the children of Israel had actually said, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's go, guys." um, What would have been the story? What would there have been to pick up afterwards?
4: And I feel like what's happening in the Old Testament are lessons for future generations. I think mm-hmm. God allows all these things to happen so the new generation learns from what happened in
1: the past. Yes, one would hope. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
4: So I think it's all predestined and... Uh,
1: it's very Calvinist of you. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> to,
4: well, it's it's a combination of man's will and God's yeah, sovereignty yeah. at
1: the same they, time. There's a really cool commentary yeah. from um, <laughs> on, on Deuteronomy from um, Watchman no, Witness Lee. Have you ever heard of this guy, Witness Lee? Okay. Um, not going to advocate that everyone rushes out and buys these books, but um, uh, it is interesting to see that they take everything as allegory. Everything. So they would say... Uh, Moses, he's, he's a type of Christ. He's Christ leading the people. And of course, the whole land is Christ. And, and the people, they are the body of Christ. So it's Christ leading the body of Christ into Christ. Isn't it just wonderful? You're like, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, not bad. Though the text still says, you know, go in, they don't do it, we can learn something. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, the Lord your God, he is going to fight. Wow. That's an interesting concept right there. God fights. You know, he has an army. Why does he need an army if he does all the fighting? When you get into Revelation, who's actually doing all the fighting?
4: The angels.
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Which is uh, one of those questions where uh, the text says God fights for you, and then when you get into the Second Temple period, they sort of get the idea that, well, well, hang on a second, Uh, he wouldn't get his hands dirty like like that. He's too holy, just and good to do that kind of nasty stuff. Uh, So he'll order somebody to do all the killing, and that'll be Michael, or some other angel, the angel of death, or the Melech HaPanim, somebody else will come in and do all the fighting. And by the time you get to the New Testament, that's exactly the way we feel. When you get to the New Testament, there's a war in heaven, Michael fights the dragon. Right not Jesus, not God, Michael, Michael argues over the body of Moses, okay not a, not the Messiah, okay uh, God, you wonder why, but somehow that's even Paul says that uh, when God came down on Mount Sinai to give us the Torah, it was actually mediated through angels,, okay? which is in Galatians uh, and it's just it 's a, a a thing that was developed in the second temple period they They needed to have uh, God be holy, which he is. But in their way, they sort of pushed him a bit far away. And so the way he got close was how? How does God remain close if he's also so far away? By his spirit. And so you end up with this part of God, which they gave a name, called the Shekhinah, which you don't find in Hebrew Bible, but you do find it in Second Temple Period sort of like, which we say call Holy Spirit. There's this part of God that he can actually emanate from himself like a breath and it can actually dwell inside you and, and so you can get that closeness but at the same time he can still be remote and far. Uh, Where so is that
4: documented? Mm-hmm. In the Second Temple period.
1: Second Temple period, so you'll be looking at uh, anything like even the Maccabees will have that kind of stuff but pierre de Rebelleza, Jubilees, Um, Testament of Abraham these kinds of books Baruch the the sort of side commentary to Jeremiah you
2: started
0: to get this um, idea of angels being much more involved in Daniel as well Mm -hmm. and there you have Michael fighting for the people of Israel
1: yeah yes so that's diaspora uh, literature so Mm -hmm. books like uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are a bit more uh, prepared to, to, to entertain and discuss the angelic warfare that's going on. Whereas once you're in the land, uh, they tend to uh, focus a little bit more on the earthy nature of a human. So, one Maccabees doesn't mention any, doesn't mention the word God, doesn't mention any angels. Second Maccabees, everyone's praying, everyone's singing hymns, lots of angels, even Jeremiah shows up, right, and gives Judah a magical sword. There's a sort of very, very strong. Connection so one Maccabees is in the land written in Hebrew in the land and two Maccabees is outside the land written in Greek Telling the same story, but from slightly different um, ways but Moses is definitely adamant that our God will fight How when with what army or whether he'll do it with himself rolling up his sleeves? the point is big guy on our side Okay So, in uh, the next verse, and in the wilderness, this is where, so he's also been fighting for us in in Egypt and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. Anything there stand out? This is the first direct term of God as Father. We haven't had we've had an allusion to God being a father in Exodus four twenty two. Anyone want to quickly read that one? 22. Exodus four twenty-two.
2: You are
1: to say to Pharaoh, this is what Adonai says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Right. So standing before the uh, the then king of the unknown world and yelling out by saying, God has a son. And his son is Israel. Israel. Right? Now, if God has a son, that would be implied that he is a wow. right. So even though it doesn't say it, okay, there's an allusion to this. Father motif of God and his people. But when you get to Moses standing before the people, you get the first time where he directly says that. God carried you just like a father carries his son. And how does the father carry the son? In his arms. In his arms. Ah. Which are strong. Right? And he does it tenderly. Does it strong? Yes. But in a way that doesn't hurt. Right? There's all that. Uh, all those motifs that come in. And so there's a theological paradigm shift that's going on in Deuteronomy. So whereas before, in the rest of the Torah, you haven't got the the, the father bit, you've got lawgiver, you've got judge, you've got creator, you've got guy who kills lots of people um, and yeah, floods the world, you know all, that, all those kinds of very strong motifs, which are true. And then when Moses is before his people, he says, your God is like a father. They so, say, wow, that's very different. And so when you get into the second temple period, they really uh, flesh that out, mainly probably because they have lots and lots of copies of Deuteronomy. And, um, and so in much of the Jewish prayer life, you develop, what's the phrase? Right? our father, our king. Uh, and the idea of, of being able to call God our Father at the same time being a king is, uh, and those two words are usually joined together one representing strong imperial might, and one representing uh, strong love, strong bonds, strong feelings. Alveino uh, our Father, our King. So much so that you end up in, in prayers like uh, the Amida which is mentions our Father a lot, the Lord's Prayer, Second Temple Period Prayer, and the Kaddish, which is actually in Aramaic, uh, where, how, does it, how do you address God in the Kaddish? Abba. Yeah, you know, that's, it's, so it's not just uh, Jesus doing it, although he does do it, but it was already there, that this sort of strong idea that, wow, you can even call God Daddy. Right, which is a really. So that
0: that's from the time of Jesus, day? The
1: Kaddish, yeah, the Aramaic prayer. Yeah. Well, yes. It, would, it was probably not used in the land. I mean, there's no evidence that it was. It was it's a Babylonian thing. But people have been in Babylon for a very long time before Jesus, <laughs> hence the high use of Aramaic.
4: So when, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, they all claimed to be sons of Abraham. Not, and then when he said he was the son of God, yeah, they took offense to it. Like that was like the first time they.
1: They shouldn't. Th- they uh, shouldn't. But that's the way they took they it. Took like it. it was
4: a completely okay. out of this world
1: concept. Well, they're having a, a rabbinic di- uh, dialogue, a te- uh, tete and so they're sort of um, saying things in, a, in in a certain way where you could, could take what they're saying in another way. For example, son of God, Jesus. Uh, when he's on the planet, doesn't identify himself as son of God. He calls himself son of man. man, uh, Because son of God is a term that that is used of anybody that has a relationship with God. So angels are called B'nai Elohim, sons of God, because they are in a relationship with God. He's the boss. Israel's called a son of God because it's in a relationship. And so Jesus could say, I am... The son of God because I am in a relationship with my father and that would be true at the same time who else is a son and daughter of God I'm looking at him
4: yeah
1: okay so we are we have the the right to be called heirs uh, of the father which is a bizarre and a wonderful blessing and so for Jesus to make sure that he gets through who he is he has to use the phrase ben adam which comes from the book of Daniel Although he also is yeah. son of God, but in a very particular way. No, because he did mention
4: and then they said they, that he blasphemed. That was one of the charges yeah. against him. Because he him.
1: claimed to be God. Yeah.
4: And the son of God. The son right. of God and God. God.
1: So, so they took him in, the, in, a, in, a, in a way that, uh, that perhaps he wanted to get, get taken, but it wouldn't be something that he would be saying to his mates around the corner, to his disciples. So God is is called a father here, and this is a paradigm shift in our theology. So as we go through the Bible for the rest, and especially into the Second Temple period, this motif of God as a father is strong, and why is it so strong, and why does it last longer than God being a king? What happens in the history of Israel? Do they take the promised land, build wonderful cities and live happily ever after? (laughs) No. (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) Okay? In which case, God as a king would be a wonderful motif to continue on for eternity.
4: Yeah, but they didn't have a king early on. They wanted a king. Right. They wanted a a human king. A human king, 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 but he was their king. Should have been. Yeah. Yeah. They did it through judges previously and...
1: Yeah. what no, I'm trying to get to something else here. Okay. So when you get when you when you mess up and the temple's destroyed and we're all carted off to Babylon and spread all over the world, um, and you wanted to say to everybody, "Hey, I believe in God. My God's a king. He's the king of heaven." And what would be a?
0: So why you've been in exile?
1: Yes. It's like, wow, your king's not very strong, is he? Because we've against them. Yeah, that's right. So, so you, yeah, you could say these things and you would be. You would be. And, and there was lots and lots of that. Lots of lots of introspection. What did we do? How did we blow it? How could we get back to God? But there's a, there's a motif that you can keep even in exile, even under oppression, even when it's all dark. And it is God is your father. So when it is dark and when the enemy is closing in, it's a lot nicer to say, my daddy's close. Right? as opposed to, my king is wonderful, except that he smacked the absolute kajubis out of us. Uh, and I have no idea whether he's going to keep punishing us, but the, the motif of the father can, is something you can hold on to. And so it develops, and it, it's a lot stronger, particularly in diaspora, when you're not in charge. And uh, when Jewish people are in charge, the, the, the ideas of kingship can, can come back up. And that's, one of the, I guess, one of the reasons why, in the Messianic era, what do we call the Messiah? The king. Right? Because what's he doing? He's winning. Right? Establishes a kingdom. We actually all come back into the land. You get the, the whole sort of a Davidic idea. And uh, so he gets the idea of the Messiah's the king, as opposed to Messiah is your father. That, that sort of image doesn't show up as much. More the, the king king concept. Yeah, right.
4: but the Jews thought that he was going to be a king of war, like like King David. Right. Messiah was going to be that, like yep. similar to King David. But yeah,
1: well, that's the that's the motif you get. Is that he's yeah. going to be from the house of David, which is this sort of warrior figure. Yeah. Uh, and there are passages in the text that tend to imply that, but there's also passages that tend to imply another type. Isaiah 15. Yeah, the more, the more gentler one, the servant type. And so you ended up with this uh, idea of, of double messiahs, right? This sort of idea of uh, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David is that the, the passage is definitely related to a messianic character, but it wasn't the type that I thought. So easiest, easy result, I'll just make two. Uh, whereas in our tradition, we just have the one guy doing both roles. So... Once we get into Revelation, when Jesus comes back, is he cuddly, warm and fuzzy? No. <laughs> no. <he's, laughs> Eyes of fire. But yes. Getting, yeah, the conquering king idea, right? There's sort of, you know, and, and that Isaiah 63 passage, which has this, um, this messianic character coming from uh, Bozrah, and he's like all stained in red. And they ask him, so uh, have you been treading on grapes? And he says, no, I've been crushing people. And I'm just spreading myself with their blood. You're like, oh, okay. I'm going to give Jesus a high five when I see him next. No, I'm going to hop on the ground and, and mm-hmm. wait. Yeah. But, um, anyway, so the, the, the motif, though, that's being introduced is we have a fatherly figure, which is, which is very precious. And he carries us. I ask a question
0: about that. Because my ESP has described that phrase as, carried you as a man carries his son. Oh All really?
2: right. Uh, yeah. Um, so anybody can help us out with the
1: Hebrew here. Yeah. Anyone got the Hebrew text? Yeah.
2: Um, the Hebrew text is a father. Yeah. A son. Ah, no. Uh, actually, yeah. You're right. Like a man. Ish.
1: Ish. Okay. So why would these guys do it? Hmm.
4: Yeah, but uh-huh. son implies father. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. No. <laughs> like a man and a son. So, so I have to double check
1: that. Okay, so we need to double check to see if the Septuagint goes down with father. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is, it is. Because, yeah,
2: because he's the son. like son. No. A man carries his
1: son. Yeah. Yes. So it, it, yeah, so a man carries his son. So the, it'd be interesting to see if the Septuagint translates it as father. So. It's man. Yeah, I'm. It's
3: man.
1: The Septuagint says I'm man. man? yeah. Curious well. Interesting. His
3: son.
1: Man carries his well. son. Yeah, which will still be a father. Yeah. Right. Although the term father isn't there. Interesting. Okay. There you go. All right. So, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. So, despite God having done all these impressive miracles, right, we don't have the courage to go into the land. Thus proving, again, that the miracles and and their relation to faith are not as strong as we would like to think. The sort of idea like, well, if if God just wrote his name in the sky and proved that he was there, we'd all believe in him. Actually, no. And what we discovered when we were going through Acts is many times when miracles did happen, the result was actually negative. Right? Uh, Paul would heal somebody and then he would get chased out of town. Yeah. Or he would blind somebody and everyone would uh, beat him up till he nearly got died. However, when he had a Bible study, we started a church. Yeah, so, and again, you see it here. This reliance on the miracles for faith, not a good idea. Wonderful when they happen. Absolutely fantastic. God is a God of miracles. Just let them be like that. And, and give God glory for them. So I'm, he, I'm sorry. Yep? Psalm 78
3: is a good commentary on this as well, you know. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'll read a couple of verses. Go for it. But uh, like verse 11 says, uh, they forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them, and then they go through a bunch of miracles in Egypt, and then how often they rebelled against him, verse 40, going down in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed
1: them from the oppressor, and so on. So, so which psalm is that one? Psalm
3: seventy-eight. Seventy-eight.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Which is a like any prayer, something that you pray regularly. So that's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Reminding ourselves, don't forget. It's
0: it as a mass which is one to teach. Mm. That's the kind of question
1: Yeah. Okay, so in uh, verse 33, so we we read that God has gone ahead of us in the journey in fire by night and cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. Uh, anything there that's interesting? He was visible. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. We've got a visible God. Yeah. And uh, which is... Nothing which we have today. Um, the motif of fire and, and cloud is a very common ancient pagan way of of how God's traveled. It, well, this is not unique. You don't go, wow, we've got fire and cloud and God's never did that. Uh, actually, they all did that. Um, the, and so it's interesting that for God when he is engaging with his people, uses the cultural way of, of expression, of appearing, of doing things, which is very interesting. Um, in, uh, one of the things I like to just show when we go to the Tower of David is you have a look at the, uh, in the Canaanite period, Jerusalem, they have a picture of a fertility goddess riding a cow. or a bull, because in the ancient world, that's what gods rode. They rode animals, beasts, or as you say in Revelation, a woman rides the beast. Um, And so when Israel made a cow, what was the God? The God was not the cow. What was the God? The God was sitting on the cow. In fact, Moses said, Behold your gods. you can use it in Hebrew, plural, Elim. And, uh, but there was nothing sitting on the cow. So what were they worshipping? Nothing. nothing. The actual cow itself wasn't what they were worshipping. Because okay? once you get into the temple, how many cows have you got in the temple? You have 12. So the big bronze lava full of water that the priests would watch there wash their hands on, has 12 cows on, one for each, uh, 12 bulls, one for each member of the tribe, three facing in each different direction. So one cow bad, but 12 cows good. Um, it wasn't the, the fact that they were worshipping a cow, it was the fact that they were trying to worship another god, even though there was nothing actually physically there. They just built the animal for the god to, to ride on. God himself sits on something. What does he sit on?
4: On a throne,
1: <coughs> yeah. But physically, on the planet, what did he sit on?
2: A chair, or like a mm-hmm. donkey.
1: The ark. He sat in the middle, on top, in between two cherubim. That's why he sat on a box. And you go, why would he want to do that? I don't know, but he did. It's interesting that uh, God takes the motifs that people know. Here, you physically see fire and cloud and and they and this cloud searches out so why would god have to search out the path surely he already knows does he not (laughs) but that's just the way that's the way moses is describing how this how god is interacting with his people you know this sort of uh Very physical presence that comes along and says, sort of, you know, this spot. This is where you make your camp. This is where the water is. This is where uh, the protection is. This is where you can um, sow some seed for a while and harvest some some grain. Mm -hmm.
0: It's an interesting uh, thing about how the people basically got used to all of these everyday miracles. Water being found for them, and clothing not wearing out, and the manner every day became mundane um, so they, they didn't have the experience of, or, you know, well, particularly those who
1: were born and grew up that, that's just how the world was as far as they were concerned that is an interesting thought isn't it being born into a world where in the morning you collect your manna and uh, when it's time to move that big fiery thing just walks in front of you uh, or in, in the Jewish Midrash what's following behind you A rock. <laughs> right? Uh, you've heard this tradition? Yeah. No. Okay, so, sure. Uh, so Moses, when they need water, well, how do you get water? He struck
4: the rock.
1: Struck. Right, you go up and he strikes the rock and water comes out. Okay, and then um, you get no more mention of how you get water until Miriam dies. And when she dies, you go, "Ooh, we need some more water. So we better go uh, talk to the rock again. And, um, and so in between this rock and that rock, there, uh, was the tradition that the rock actually follows them. Is it?
4: but wasn't it when, when they needed water, God came out and stood on the rock and then he told them to strike the rock. So it was God that was giving them the water. Well, didn't he, didn't he say that I'm going to go and stand on the rock and then he struck the rock. I thought that's what happened.
1: Oh, I yeah. can't remember exactly. No? In the first time, Moses yeah. strikes a rock. In the second time, he's supposed to speak to it. But God is sitting inside a tent. Um, we actually might I read that to. passage in a bit. But 1 Corinthians 10, you got it, have yeah. you? Yeah, read it out. Okay.
0: Um, Moses says, chapter 10, verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was crushed.
1: Mm. So, um, so it was God. Yeah, so... I have an
0: idea, if you
1: imagine this, you know, people are not watching this. <laughs> <for> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, Dad, look at that. So ignore it, son. <laughs> it's, uh, wow. it's not that Paul is saying that there definitely was a rock following the people of Israel. That's not what yeah. we're saying. What we're saying is that in the Second Temple period, it was part of the exegetical tradition... And it was part of the way people thought that, how did we get water? Well, the rock just kept following them. It was obvious, wasn't it? Okay. Now, whether Paul thinks there was really a rock, or whether he thinks there wasn't really a rock, is actually irrelevant. He's using the idea to tell you, look, Messiah's always with you. Just stop. Turn around. Living water right there. Don't worry. He's that strong. He's never going away. It becomes irrelevant whether it's true or not, and Paul uses it as a great way to to, to mention the other tradition of how you get water is Miriam. Okay, is that her gift of prophecy was the ability to locate water, and so that 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 exegetical tradition comes from the phrase in Numbers chapter twenty where it says Miriam died. Very very next words, and there was no water. No no, no sentence break. Just Miriam died and there was no water. Okay. What's the connection? Obviously, Miriam and water are a connection. Uh, so one tradition, the rolling rock, the other tradition, prophetess uh, gives us gives us water. Take your pick. Uh, anyway, the point was, our provider is always there, always fighting for us, and that's wonderful. However, God hears. God hears uh, what we've been saying and he is angry. And then he solemnly swears. Uh, How would God do that? Yeah. I find it interesting.
0: I think it's in Numbers 14. And um, he swears about those people, those ten people who came up with a bad report. From the land, and said, "You know, the citizens walked war the heaven and the giants, and we just can't do it. We were like grasshoppers in their sight." Yep. And and the Lord takes an oath, and He says, "Even as the world shall be full with the glory of God, shall these people not enter the land?"
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> I, said, I mean, for God to take an oath, um, it, I mean, there's nothing greater than Him. So. We, he either has to swear by himself, but in this occasion he's swearing by the fact that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, yeah. as the waters cover the sea, which comes in two other places later. So it's, it's an amazing oath that he takes against these ten spies that came back with a bad report. Yep. Yeah, because they contradicted his word. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, but it's such a strong way to say it. I mean. Some people have mixed feelings of, is the, Lord really gonna, is it, is the earth going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover
1: the sea? Well, actually, the Lord took an oath on that basis. That's right. So the answer is yes. 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 Yeah. The answer is yes, this will happen. Yeah. I, it's interesting that God would do these things. The, the, the way the Bible portrays God, he sings. He feels joy. He cries. He loves. You know? He woos. You know? He takes oaths. He gets angry. He's jealous. You know, he has all the emotions we have, right?
4: But his word is it eternal. <laughs> yeah. So whatever he says so here, he's angry.
1: <laughs> here, here Moses is saying, the Lord heard what you said, and uh, and he's angry with you, and he has taken an oath, and his oath in here is that. Uh, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land that I, I swore to give your ancestors. Ah, well, except Caleb, son of Yefuna. He'll see it, and I'll give him and his descendants the land he sets his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. All right. I think it's important also to, to, to say
2: that uh, the reason for it is because Israel didn't believe, like, nobody said because they did that or they did that or, you know, they didn't follow some rule or something, mm-hmm. they didn't believe. Nah, go no, on.
1: That's a good they, point. Yeah. It's
2: very important because all over the Old Testament, God wants us to, to believe. Believe, yep.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, good point. I'm just going to make that note down because I'm learning to. <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's what the Hebrew writer says as well in Hebrews 3, you know, they had a sinful, uh, evil, unbelieving
1: heart. Unbelieving, that's right. Yeah, as opposed to just breaking a law. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Their hearts were hardened as well. And I I really think um, what we were saying a while ago, um, they get all these miracles and God blesses them in so many ways. And if you don't humbly accept God and obey Him and believe Him and your obedience... Uh, shows your faith, then your heart is hardened, it seems. Uh, That's what Hebrews 3 is, I think, pointing out. I also think it's interesting that the writer in Hebrews 3 says that who was it that led them anyway? Was it not Moses? I mean, that was a point he's making. They had a great leader as well. This is one of the greatest leaders the world's ever known. I think maybe the greatest earthly leader, Moses. I'm not sure you could find a better.
4: Not according to Jesus, though, because <laughs> well, he said that, that John the Baptist was the greatest human on no, no, I'm talking about, talking about the earthly
3: uh, reign. Uh, earthly reign. Yeah, an earthly reign. I don't know that David was better. I think Moses to do what Moses did. Yes, How can you compare it? Yeah, but hardly yeah. what Moses. Did. John the Baptist was. When prophet. you
1: actually read the Davidic uh, account, he spends a fair bit of time hanging out in Jerusalem, and his nephew does a lot of the fighting for him. His his Ramat uh, Kal, his uh Joab. In fact, it Joab's, you know, running around beating everybody up, that uh, he actually has to write back and say, "Hey, boss, you better come over here and actually win one, because <laughs> it's made, I'm looking I'm looking good here." Uh, mm. So, okay, so uh, w- this evil generation is not going to see the ooh, what type of land? Well, good, land. good land. Okay. Um, What's so good about it? Milk and honey. Milk and honey, okay. Is that it? (laughs) Full of fruits and fruitfulness. We're going to hear about that later. Yes, it's very fruitful. It's a very very fruitful land. And it uh, seems to be one of those things that yes, uh, it can be a little dry, and it can be very rocky. Okay. But there seems to be something about this place, you stick anything in the ground and it somehow grows.
2: Yeah. And
1: you're stunned, you think, I well, don't want to grow. Uh, it's uh, add water, will grow. And
2: the roses all day,
1: all year long. Yeah. yeah, and tulips and all those kinds of things. This is very, very, very precious. Um,
4: Even if it doesn't rain, because I know in Bethlehem it's uh, where the hot air from the Mediterranean meets the mountains, so you Mm -hmm. get a lot of dew. Okay. So that waters just enough enough for for even if you don't get the rain, the dew provides enough water for
1: to get Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and it's just enough, but it's very fruitful.
3: Well, it's not just that. I mean, if anybody's built a new house when you move in, there's nothing there. You have to. Yeah you know, pack everything in, silverware and pots and pans and furniture. But they didn't have to do that. I mean, they got houses that had couches and microwaves and everything, or the walls already built around the city, farms, they had the cattle, everything, their fences around them. I mean, that that was uh, made it pretty nice.
1: Yeah? Yeah. So this is uh so God has sworn to give this land uh, to them, except that they don't want to come and take it. So they're not going to get it, except for Kalev, okay, which sometimes we would use that Hebrew. It is a modern Hebrew word for dog, that is true. But that's not the meaning of the Kalev here. Okay? Kalev also means, what does it also mean? Like, our- like a heart. Like whose heart? Like God's heart. Because he walked with the Lord wholeheartedly. Right? And, and, and in Deuteronomy the emphasis is going to be on the heart write the Torah on your heart circumcise your heart follow the law with all your heart and here again wholeheartedly uh, and then in verse uh, 37 okay, uh, Moses says because of you the Lord became angry with me also and said you shall not enter it either but your assistant Joshua son of Nun he'll enter it encourage him Because he will lead Israel to inherit it. So a couple of things there. Uh, What was not said? What did Moses leave out?
2: What God said to him.
1: Okay. So Moses says, because of you the Lord became angry with me. Because
2: Moses fought not people. Because he didn't obey. He has to speak to God, but he was
1: twice. Correct. The actual account... Is in Numbers 20, yeah. Moses is deliberately avoiding saying yeah. some stuff. Okay, so in Numbers 20, we read that uh, in verse two or in verse one, uh, there Miriam died and was buried, and there was no water for the community. So the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarrel with Moses and they said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness? That we and our livestock should die here. They've got all this livestock. Why do they need manna for? Don't know. Um, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, figs, grapevines or pomegranates. And there's no water. So Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Right? So the response of Moses and Aaron is, Oh, I don't know what to say. I'll go ask God. Okay, Which is actually, they do that a lot. Okay, In Exodus and Numbers, that is Moses' first response. Whenever he's challenged, he's going to go check it out with God. Okay? Which is not a bad thing to do. Okay? Uh, the Lord says to Moses, Take the staff and your brother Aaron. Gather uh, the assembly together. Speak to that rock. Uh, before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. Okay, it will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they know how to go and drink. So, uh, God's not angry with the people. He's going to give them his. He's going to give them their provision. They have a legitimate complaint. They have no water. Moses takes the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. Aaron and Moses gather the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses says, "Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock?" Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff, water gushed out the community, in the eyes or drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Okay. So a lot there. Moses shrinks all that invent by saying, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so okay. Mark-
2: because they were complaining.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yes, to yeah. Okay. It's just one of those things where it's like I really don't need to. I, I'm just going to let you guys have this one. Okay. Um, because of you, the Lord became angry with me. Oh. Okay. Okay. You shall not enter it uh, either. And then Joshua going to come because it is to lead Israel to inherit it. Okay. So part of the. Uh, Idea of uh, coming in to possess the land. There's one part. Which is going to be an invasion? What's the other part? Okay. It's an inheritance. So where do you get an inheritance from?
2: Because it
1: was
0: promised to Abraham. Isaac.
1: Okay. Yep. Where? What's the what? Um, what is so strong about an inheritance? Or a claim of inheritance. I mean, there's one way to take land, you invade. It's Might is right. Okay? If you don't believe in God, then the only other option is evolution, mm. correct? That's it. It's the only other option. There's no we're all seated by aliens or something like that. At the end of the day. No God, okay? And in evolution, it's survival of the fittest. Might is right. Which means you take it, you own it, it's yours. Stop arguing. Okay? Except, there's another way that the Bible uh, puts this land. And the land, calls it an inheritance. And there's actually a claim to that. How do you get an inheritance? Family. Family. That's right. And uh, so this is coming down from... Yes, the promise to the patriarchs. Okay, and so you're going to go in, and you're going to inherit this. It's a strong claim. It's not just uh, Moses is actually giving a very strong claim to the land.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, this causes all kinds of problems in our current day, of course. Uh, but the text still says what it says, and um, and we need to wrestle with that. So this land is an inherited portion. Okay, it's a, and uh, and the little ones that you said that would be taken captive uh, your children who, d- who did not yet know good from bad they will enter the land i will give it to them and they'll take possession of it all right that's an interesting little concept there isn't it what's the concept Biblical concept of knowing good from evil, when does it happen? Because in the good normal solid Western tradition, when do we believe you're bad? At birth. At birth. <laughs> okay, which we will call original sin. This is not original sin. This is something else.
3: Okay?
1: God is saying, God, okay, through Moses. Or you could probably argue Moses if you wanted to. But God, through Moses, is saying, because God is saying, the little ones who don't yet know good from evil. Wow, what kind of great state is that? Mm -hmm. So there is a concept. There are two concepts tracking. One is what they call, in Hebrew, you call it the ra, isn't it? The ra, the evil inclination. How do you call it? Not reincarnation,
2: <laughs> evil
1: inclination. <laughs> the, uh, is it, Yetzirah, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's it. The Yetzirah and the Yetzirah the uh, the part of you that leans towards evil and the part of you that leans towards good. And everybody's got it, and everybody can do both good and evil. That's the reason why bad people can still do good things, okay? And good people can still do bad things. This other side is where you also get it from King David uh, in his psalms that I was bad from birth. So on one hand, there is this knowledge of good and evil, which originally we got from the tree, but then kids don't seem to get it until they're older. When? We don't know. It doesn't exactly say when you magically turn 13, you're in trouble. Okay, um, But it does... it seems to be something... That where God says, the little ones, that don't yet know good from evil. Right? Um, there's, and they both track at the same time. And
3: this idea of inheritance, going back just a bit, it is a dominant theme in the Bible. Yep. I mean, it's done several, maybe two, three hundred times in the Bible, mm-hmm. the idea of an inheritance.
1: It's a very strong claim. Yeah. Because the only way you claim it is by saying what? I'm a son. I can get my inheritance now. You don't get it because I'm intelligent. You don't get it because I've got six degrees. You don't get it because I married the right girl. You get it because you are a son. That's a very strong claim. And it's very precious in the New Testament. What are we? We're called heirs, are we not? That's a very powerful claim. That's a great and wonderful claim because suddenly it's not what you did, it's not how many gifts of the spirit you have, it's your relationship with me, says God, is I am your father and you are my son, so you get something.
4: Yeah, but our inheritance is in in heaven. That's your inheritance is not not here.
1: I'm not 100% sure I
3: <laughs> no?
1: My father's giving me good things right now. <laughs> Does he not? So, as for you, okay, this is for everybody else who's not one of these people, which is like two guys and some kids. Okay, as for you, turn around and set off towards the desert, go back towards the, the Red Sea. And the response is, what do they say? Then we replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God has commanded. Okay, so they actually repent. Oh no, we acknowledge what we've done. We repent. That's a good thing. Yes? Yes, okay, good. So every one of you put on his weapons and thinking it's uh, easy to go up into the old country. like, okay... I've had the, ber- the, the, the speech, the sermon, uh, turn or burn. I have done the altar call and I'm ready. Okay? So we gather our weapons. Um, should be a good thing, except, uh, yes. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command. Oh, hang on. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. Now, why would God... Say that.
2: They will
1: learn and Possible. We could do the Calvinistic thing. We need them to say no, we need them to rebel so that we can learn. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the people are there. Spies have said we're not we are not gonna to they're too big, we rebel and God says, Look, that's bad and then the people say, Oh, you're right, that is bad, we've sinned. We're ready now. And yet God says, I'm "Not listening." Why would He say that? I don't particularly know. Just it's one of those things we need to wrestle with. Is that why not? Okay. Perhaps there is something to do with timing. Perhaps it is. Maybe John Calvin's right. Although I do think that uh, two people do have a choice.
4: Yeah, but you can have free will and you can also be fulfilling the will of God sure. and the sovereignty of God being Absolutely. aligned.
1: Yes, you can. I yeah. think that's what I believe in. Yeah, Yeah, I would too.
4: But I think it's documented and it does happen for future... I do think that it, it's, it's the reason it's in the Bible and the reason it happens, it's something to learn from yeah. because it const- the same mistakes constantly happen. Mm-hmm. They rebel against God, and then, you know, God gets angry, takes them out of the land, then he brings them back in. Yeah.
1: And we're still doing it. Yeah, it's still. It's I think still. all of us here have probably all done this. Yes. Yeah. Everyone in this room has probably rebelled. done rebelled, <laughs> and then turned around and said, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can do it now, right? With the answer coming back, actually, no, you can't. There's what's one thing to learn about an action there's a consequence yes. is there not yes there's a consequence to an action you do X y follows but I said sorry absolutely the consequence to follows and that tends to happen even even in we do it to our children or I hope we do and uh, and God does it to us and God did it to his people right on the cusp of the invasion uh, he said no don't do it but you told me to. Yes, I know I told you to, but not anymore. The Joshua will do it. The, this generation's not going in. So you've got to turn around and go back. So we disobey the first time. We disobey again the second time. We don't like the idea of doing a wander. Uh, so in this retelling, uh, Moses says, You wouldn't listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command. And in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. Which is where the Amorites are. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees. And they beat you like a drum. They beat I mean, you they down. 36 people. 36, is it?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. It's in uh, Numbers 14, I think, is the actual uh, telling. So let's have a look and see what Moses is leaving out. Um, All right, so in Numbers 14, um, it says in verse, uh, I think it's 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Okay, well, we certainly don't mention that bit in the retelling here. Okay. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunei, survived. Then Moses reported this to all the Israelites. They mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point of the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. So in Numbers, what is it that instills them to repent? The spies die, okay, and uh, they go. Oops! The guys who said don't go in, well, they're all dead. I think we'll go in now, okay? So the but they do it the next morning, okay. this sort of uh, idea. Uh, Moses says, "Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This, this will not succeed." So in in Numbers, there's a, you've got this time delay of a day, okay. You know, That's sort of the next morning idea. Um, do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekite and the Canaanites will face you, because they have turned, away, because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, uh, and you will fall by the sword. So, in the Deuteronomy passage, it, what does Moses imply? He tends to say that the the Lord told him that the, you're not good. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, "Tell them not to do it." When you get to the actual Numbers passage, it's the other way around. Moses is saying, "Look, the Lord's not with you. Don't do this." And who's the enemy we're fighting in Numbers? Amalek. In Deuteronomy, who who are we fighting? Amorim Okay, so slightly different. Um, Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the highest point of the hill country, although neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them all the way to Hormah. Um, So where have we heard of Amalek before?
0: 17.
1: Exodus 17. Exodus Right, they are the first nation that uh, that come out to fight uh, against Israel after they've left Egypt. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Okay, so uh, these are in some form of cousins or somehow related, and uh, and it's just a tradition. Um, but they deliberately wanted to have Amalek on the border to stop. Right? Esau deliberately put Amalek there and said, now you wait, a couple of hundred years from now the Israelites will want to come up and you've got to stop them. Right? They sort of got this idea that the enemy that's against us is thinking ahead. Right? That's what they're trying to say. They're not, they're not believing that it's actually really true, but they're, what, they're believing in the idea that we have an enemy, and he's making plans in the future, right? He's planning to get you by in another way. Okay. Um, and after we kill Amalek and defeat him, what does God say?
0: I will have war forever against
1: him. Yes, yes. I'm going to have a war. It, uh, he does. And for some reason, you scratch your head and you go, "Why would, uh, why would you do that?" And so the enemy that we're looking for in every generation is who? Amalek. In fact, there are three commandments of the 613 laws of Moses that deal with Amalek. Okay? 598. All comes from Deuteronomy, by the way. Deuteronomy 25. Uh, rule number 598. Don't forget Amalek. Don't forget him. Uh, rule number 500 598. F- uh, Ninety-nine. Um, remember what Amalek did, and, and Rule six hundred: when you find him, kill him.
2: Where's so, the northern? Where's that who? Who you say the northern Amalek?
1: I don't know. Okay. Uh, I think the last time, the last Amalek that they said uh, was Achmirinajer. I think that's the last time there's been a public uh, rabbinic guy say who who Amalek was so like in our tradition we're waiting for antichrist yes Yeah. okay there's there's the antichrist in every generation well that idea that there's something in every generation is already a jewish one which is which is amalek we're looking for this guy who's going to come out and get us but in deuteronomy the enemies are named a different dude okay we use the the using the term the the still the hill country uh there's no obvious reason why um, there's, a, there's a change um, but, but it is a little different the retelling of, of Moses uh, here is he flies through the information misses a fair bit of it uh, and changes a few of the words there, there's got to be a reason why he's doing this he's a very smart man and I don't always know but I'm hoping that by the end of Deuteronomy I'll have a better picture of it
3: Haman was
4: an amulet
1: Yes, he was one of them, yep. Mm
4: -hmm. Yes? I found the verse about uh, striking the rock, it's Exodus 17, verse 6, it says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. So he is the the living water for the people, so he he told Moses that, I will stand on the rock, Mm -hmm. and then you will strike the
1: rock. Yep. And in and in the numbers, win uh, the phrase is that rock. Right. And For then, then
4: when Jesus gets stabbed with the, with the spear, blood oh, and, yeah, and yeah. water spray out of
1: True. it. so it's all tied back. Really?
4: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, do you have any idea of why uh, the the uh, the this the switch? From Amalek to Amoraim, I don't really know the reason reason why they would. However, um, and I don't know who Amalek is in this generation. But but whoever he is, he's he's out there. And if you do find him, what's the command? Heal. Yes.
2: it to Iran. I wouldn't say it to Iran.
1: What is that right word? So that's why I was asking. Yeah, no, I think the last time, the last time these, uh, every now and again, these little councils of sages get together and they have these discussions. Uh, there was one about, it might be six years ago now, they were really worried uh, whether Gog and Magog was around the corner. Mm-hmm. So they had a, there were signs of them around the city. You know, we were having a discussion on when's Gog and Magog happening. And the di- end of the discussion was, uh, we don't know. So they started with we don't know, and they finished with we don't know. <laughs> but they had a good discussion about it, mm-hmm. and it was very public. Uh, and then I think it was one of the chief rabbis said um, that Achbinijad he was Amalek, and then nothing happened, and he disappeared off the center stage, and so they went, oh, well maybe he wasn't. Okay.
4: But I, I like your explanation of the Antichrist because it is, the, you know, the, the spiritual person Thing. that denies Christ as Lord and Savior
1: and tries to stop the plans of God exactly yes yeah. so I think it switches over from it switches over. yeah yeah so you got to you got to find out who this guy is and, mm-hmm. and, and stop him so taking it then uh, to us to, uh, to see if we can learn something from their rebellion because uh, they they hear the command to go and invade they are told how God has done wonderful things they refuse in the numbers case, the spies die. But in this case, it's just a rebellion. They are, they cut to the chase. They um, repent, but then God says, "Not going up." The—that was the timing's wrong now. Okay, I'm not. There's a consequence to to an action. Um, they choose not to listen to God again, and then they they suffer a defeat. How do you think they would have felt? Guilty could be one of them. What are some of the other possible emotions? How do you feel when... uh, Afraid. You feel afraid when plans don't work out? Yeah?
0: Confused.
1: Confused, yeah. I think that's that's probably the big one for me. When um, I thought I heard from God, or I thought that people told me that they heard from God, and then things didn't work out, and you go oh, well now i 'm just confused because it seemed really good. It seemed like this would have actually been an honorable thing to the lord why i didn't know what yeah there's a there's a few things there confusion's one, so I guess these guys might have been a little confused. angry could be one angry at the Lord, kick the tent, kick the camel, you know whatever um, uh or it could be some of the other emotions. Disappointment, yeah. Abandonment. God abandoned me. Guess what I'm going to do? I'll abandon him. Yeah. Yeah? And then you storm around and I'm not, I'm not going to pray for the next three years, you know. Um, sometimes that happens. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, for us, then it's not
4: condi- unconditional love, is it? No.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> However, we we as humans, we as humans, uh, or f- there are there is some conditions. Like <laughs> right? when you get to the Gospel of John, there are lots of conditional statements. If you remain in me, remain right? Okay, yeah, but then. there's an if then. There are a lot of if then statements. There's a lot of unconditional stuff too, but yes. you got to got to keep it in a nice balance. But as we, we, you know, looking at uh, this text, now it's a historical text. This is what Moses did. He stood up and he said, and he made a few changes, modified some of the things, left a bit, a few bits out. There's a reason why he's doing it. I'm not 100% sure I know it, what it is right now, but we are only in chapter one. Later on, we might be able to tweak it and go, ah, now I can figure that out. And I might do a bit of rereading uh, I'm still learning this as 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 we go. Um,
4: Isn't that why God gave humanity free will? Is because He wants unconditional love. He doesn't want a robot giving Him love because He's providing or blessing Him. Yeah. Well, all, you know, it's, love
1: it's... love has to be a choice, because God gives a command, does He not? Love he says, "Love the Lord your God," oh, and yes. it can't be. Um, it's got to be something you're capable of choosing to do as opposed to something you just feel like.
4: Yeah, but it's like you said, a lot of people say, if I don't get this
1: blessing yeah, or right. if I don't get this, then I'm not, yeah, not going yeah, to love gonna God. God. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. wrong. And, uh, that's right. It's wrong, I'm sure. We've all
4: done it in this yeah. world. Yeah, well, it's frustrating, but yeah. it's not like you have to be
1: faithful. Yeah. Get you I think fast yeah, exactly <laughs> so in the in the um in the numbers text it ends with them getting back to homa in the deuteronomy text Moses adds a sentence what does he say he says you came back and you wept before yeah. the Lord but he paid no attention to your weeping Ooh, now that is he turned a deaf ear to you right that is a harsh sentence yes. isn't it I mean, there are some sentences in the Bible that scare the pants off you. <laughs> <laughs> some are, I never knew you. That one's scary.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? Mm. And this one is also scary. God paid no attention to your weeping. Yeah. Whoa.
2: It, it's coming again and again that if God says something, it will, it will happen. So, yeah. so Jesus say, I will not take my words back to me. My words will go out okay. and it will... Uh,
1: will be. Will achieve so, the thing God I said set it the to one, do. Let's
2: say, today, something like that and tomorrow you can change his opinion. So yeah. if God says something that's the way it, it is. Happen. Yeah. yeah um yeah, and, and that's how we see it here. You know, yeah, very you much. it's more like Jesus talking about it more <coughs> it's yeah. open the
4: tears, You know God said something so it's it will be like that. It's not, not going back. Yeah, I think the scary part is he's not showing them any mercy by not, you know, if they're crying and trying to console, right. he's, he's not yeah. being so, merciful upon that
1: generation in, for yeah. whatever reason. So, so here's, here's the other side of the coin. Let's also remember the context and on one, like in, in, in good Jewish exegesis, on one hand it says this, on the other hand, so here's the generation that is not going in to possess the land. But does God abandon them? Mm-hmm. In this case, at this point, he's not listening to their weeping. So he's gonna let you cry for a while. But what's he gonna do tomorrow morning?
0: Give
1: the man up. Yep. And what's gonna go in front of them? The cloud. A cloud. And what's gonna happen to their clothing?
0: Not not right. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. So, so on one hand there's this sort of there is, the, there is the part of God that goes I'm not listening to this you cry as much as you like but there's another side of him still too yeah. right? the bit that says yeah and, uh, and tomorrow have this and, and I'm going to find you a nice spot where you can rest your camels and that clothing that should have been going that way and is going this way it's not going to wear out and so there's those there's, there's, there's two parts to God, aren't there? Which is also still a very encouraging thing. God didn't, didn't abandon these people. He didn't leave them, and He was with them when they died. And that's actually a very nice thought. That even though He told them, you're not going into the land, He stayed with them as well. And so the remnant of these people are now standing on the plains of Moab and hearing this all again. And they're getting ready for Moses' last speech where the next day he's gonna kill over dead and, uh, and Joshua is gonna lead the invasion followed by a mass circumcision. Okay, but anyway, all right. So the next uh, chapter um, is the very different retelling of uh, the wanderings, with the beginning battles uh, or the defeats of several kings.
4: So we can't beat
1: the Amorites in the land, but we can beat them everywhere else. Including uh, getting rid of some of the big guys. Start taking down some of the giants. Okay? Like the king of Sachon and the king of All
0: Alright.
2: Great.